please remain standing for the reading of God's word. Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the womb of the morning. The dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Well, good morning. I invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Mark chapter 12. We're going to be taking a little bit of a bigger chunk today. We're going to look at verses 35 through 44. They probably appear in your Bible as three different uh, subheadings and not all together. You can see there. And I think as we make those choices of how much Bible to take all at one time, it's just an important note to say the reality is, is each of these could probably have their own sermon. They all have enough within them that they could have their own sermon. But every now and then, I make a choice because I want to show you how the Bible works. I want to show you that you can hone in on the Bible and look and get every little detail and squeeze out the meaning in small text. And I also want to show you that sometimes to get meaning from the Bible, we need to take a step back just a little bit and look at the context surrounding these texts and how they interact with one another. Because when the Holy Spirit worked in the, uh, the man Mark's life to write this text, he did so in such a way that not only inspired every word, but even the ordering of the way that these words come out and in these various teachings that we see in Jesus' life. And so I would say there is interpretive meaning to be found when we just take a bit of a step back and say, what is God teaching us when we take a step back and we look at how these stories interchange with one another? And so that's why we're going to take a look at these uh, texts with a little extra, uh, I guess, pull back on the zoom button, if you will. That's why we're doing that. As we look at this, I think there's this theme that kind of pulls these three together, and that's the theme of, of what I'm just going to use the word greatness to describe you go to any child and you ask them what they want to be when they grow up, we usually quickly find that they aspire to some pretty great things. They want to be professional athletes. They want to cure cancer. They want to be famous actors or rock stars or, or really the really ambitious kid will tell you, I want to be a professional athlete who cures cancer in the off season. And then at the end of my athletic career aspires to be an actor in Hollywood, right? That's the really ambitious child. Uh, we recently had one tell us, I'm trying to decide uh, between a scientist, uh, a ballerina, and a teacher, Maybe I'll just be all three, right? Like that's, that's what we see. And what I'm just trying to bring out is in us, there's this desire to do something great. We all want to leave a mark on this world. We want to do something that's truly amazing and great. And while a lot of the things that a kid tells you, because while we love them and they're cute and adorable, they are born in sin, is very me-centered in all the great things that they're going to do. And if we're honest, when you talk about greatness, it can get that way as well. I want to say, even though we see that get twisted and tainted by sin, that maybe, maybe, just maybe at the very baseline of this desire to make an impact, there's a part of it that is because we are, in fact, image bearers of a really, really great God. 
And just maybe God has made us as humanity to make an impact, to actually accomplish some things and to be great. After all, when you become a Christian, you're justified before God and made right before him. You're then put on this journey of what we call sanctification, meaning over time you become more and more holy, more and more like Jesus. You don't sin quite as much as you live. And eventually what the Bible tells us is that one day when you die and Jesus comes back, you will be, and it actually uses this word, glorified with him. And that's pretty great. Paul tells us in Philippians that you'll shine like the sun. That your new resurrected body is so magnificent, so great, that it shines. When Moses spends time with Jesus, his, or with the Lord, his face shines. There's a reality of greatness that comes within us, but what I want to say is this, is God has made you to be great, but it's probably not the way that you think it is. And that's what I think we see if we take a step back and look at all three of these stories together, if you will, looking through Mark 12, 35 through 44. I think we get different pictures or snapshots or angles of what greatness is really all about, what it really means to accomplish something in this world. And so what we see first is we're going to see that there's a declaration of greatness. We then see a warning against greatness, at least the world's version of it. And then finally, we get this little picture, this really, really beautiful picture at the end of Mark chapter 12 of what greatness really looks like in the kingdom of God. And so I want to take those just one at a time, and we'll just read them as we go. And so if you're looking at your Bible, Mark chapter 12, picking up in verse 35, I want to read through verse 37 as we see a declaration of greatness. Jesus is teaching, and he's teaching that he is the Messiah, and that he is truly great. Verse 35. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribe say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself, in the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself, call, David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. Well, as we remember for our last couple of weeks, Jesus has been getting challenged. He's been getting questioned by the religious elite of his time. And now it's Jesus' turn. At the end of last week, as they said, he teaches, and no one dared ask him any more questions. But now Jesus asks a question. He asks the question that it really ought to have been asking all along. Who's the Messiah? Who is the Christ? As he stood before him. And he's trying to get to that, and he brings out this passage that they would recognize as authoritative, of Psalm 110. We read that in our scripture reading this morning. He asks this this question of how can this be true? How can David, now if you're not familiar with your Old Testament, that's okay. David was a king of Israel and he was considered Israel's greatest king. When you think of David, you would really think about greatness. He's like the George Washington of Israel, right? He's, he does it really, really well. He models what it means to be a king in many, many ways. And so he brings out David and he says, David himself Ask, says the Lord, says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. How can David call the Messiah's son if the Messiah is supposed to be the son of David? Now, even Jesus calls himself the son of David throughout the Gospels. Even that is mentioned throughout them. But Jesus is trying to get to something because he's trying to help us see that, yes, he is from the lineage of David. That that's a part of prophecy that does need to be fulfilled. But he is not subordinate to David. 
in this time and in this culture, sons are always going to be subordinate to their fathers. And so if Jesus is a son of David, does that then imply that he is somehow subordinate to David? And we would say, no, Jesus is better than David. He is a better king. In all the things that David did right, Jesus does better. In all the things that David did wrong, Jesus never does. He's a better king and he's better than David. And Jesus is trying to show, I am better, are the Christ, God's anointed, God's anointed king, even at times David gets referred to as a Messiah or messianic figure because he's anointed. If you remember in the Old Testament when uh, the prophet Samuel comes and anoints David to be king, that's what that means. That word Christ is the Greek word that we get in our Hebrew is Messiah. It's the anointed king of Israel. But the Bible told and foretold in 2 Samuel 7 that a great king would come and his kingdom would be established forever that he was going to be different than all the other kings in the Old Testament. And this is Jesus. And this is what Jesus is trying to get them to see here. And he asked them, how can the Christ, how can he be the son of David? Or how could he be subordinate to David? If even David, and then he kind of starts heaping on his greatness, heaping on the authority. If David in the Holy Spirit, like not David just walking around, David in the Spirit, writing authoritatively, writing the Scriptures, If he's doing that, when we know he's infallible when he's doing this, he says, he starts to heap it on, the Lord said to my Lord. Now here in in the Hebrew text in Psalm 110, two different words are getting used for Lord. The first one is the the word Yahweh. It's God's covenant name. He is I am. is the the God of the universe. And the second one is Adonai, which is personal, my Lord. And he says, the Lord said to my Lord. Now, when this is originally written, a lot of times what they would use this for was the coronation of a new king in Israel. A new king in Israel would come, and he would, they would say, the Lord, Yahweh, says to my Lord, the new king, come sit at my right hand, and I will make the enemies uh, be your footstool, or, or you know, put your enemies under your feet. And then they would sing the rest of that psalm, and it gets really gruesome. It's not the kind of songs that we would sing, because it talks about, you know, filling up the nations with corpses and stuff. We'll get to that here in a second, but I guess our culture is just a little different now, right? I don't see that one getting played on the top 40 anytime soon. Uh, but but that's, that's what they do. And that's, and that's a song that they would sing as, as, as that would happen. But, but David is saying this, and I think he's, and Jesus is trying to point out, is like, no, there, there's a future meaning that's being fulfilled now in your midst. The Lord said to my Lord, Yahweh is saying to Jesus, the Christ, the anointed, the Messiah, Come sit at my right hand. And we know that when Jesus resurrects and ascends into heaven, where does he go? He goes to sit sit where? At the right hand of the Father. And that there is a promise being made, a promise that's already been made in 2 Samuel, that his kingdom will be established and it will rule forever. His enemies will rule at his feet for all time. Again, that is like heaping on some greatness. He's saying it in the Holy Spirit. He's going to sit at the right hand of the Father, the place that is like, the greatest, most grand place to be, the right hand of God, of Yahweh. And his enemies are going to be put under his feet. All of his enemies are going to be in, they're going to be subject to him. They're going to submit to him. And that's what he's saying of Jesus. That that's just what he's going to do. And so while Jesus is from David's lineage, we see that in, in Matthew's account of his genealogy and in Luke's account of his genealogy, even when they kind of shoot off from each other and show different ways that he comes from the lineage of David. But Luke really helps us out because he goes a little step further. If you can remember it, he works backwards. He starts with Jesus and ends at the very end and he gets the son of Adam and then he says, son of God. 
Because that's what Jesus is trying to show them. I'm different. I'm not like you, and I'm not like these other kings. I am the son of God. And while, yes, he's from David's lineage, he is not subordinate to David. He is truly, truly great. And there's being a promise. And we actually get to see a snapshot of what that promise is going to be like fulfilled if we look at the book of Revelation, verses, uh, chapter 19, verses 11 through 16. It'll be on the screen with me. I'm just going to read it and kind of explain it as we go the best that I can. I'll be honest, when we get to the book of Revelation, there are things that I have to say. I don't know. But this one's pretty clear. John tells us, Then I saw heaven open to behold a white horse. The one sitting on it was called, listen to his name, Faithful and True. That's actually a little fun fact for the household. That's where Vera's name comes from. Her name means faithful. That we want to see that Jesus' name and who he is is faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, or crowns, like for royalty. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. So while it's telling us his name is faithful and true, it's also telling us there's things about him you just can't see. It's, it's bringing in both of these realities. He's talking about his name, and he talks again about his name. He says his name is the word of God, and here's a second. He talks about his name. He's saying, one, he's faithful and he's true to you. He'll never abandon you. But also, good news, this God that you love and that you serve and this Christ has come, he's transcendent and he's more than you. He's greater than you are. And there's things about him that you don't know and don't understand. And that's good news. There's things that he has and holds in his hands that you'll never really get around to understanding in this life. But then he starts talking about this judgment. What what Psalm 110 told us was his enemies at his feet. And he says, he's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. That's gruesome. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies, not even just army, but the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. Talking about those enemies coming under his feet. If we look through that Psalm 110, it talks about the scepter that, would, that he would use to rule over in Zion. That's a rod of iron. Scepters are nice. A lot of times we look at them, and I think of like things made of gold. That's a really ineffective scepter because gold is soft. Iron is not soft. The rod of iron is meant to hit people with. He's going to rule, he's going to reign, and, and there's no one who can withstand him. That's what that is telling us. That at his very word, he's going to strike down the nations. We think that when, in the book of John, when they came to arrest him, and they said, are you him? And he said, I am. And they all just fell back. His very word is enough to just knock them to the ground. His very word is what he judges them with. The word of God, his name and he will rule with them a rod of iron, and he will tread on the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. It's talking about grapes being squished. This is gruesome. His robe is dipped in blood. He's saying this isn't going to overtime. This is not going to be a close fight. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written. What is it? King of kings and Lord of lords how can he be the son of david david the king the lord said to my lord come sit at my right hand and i will put your enemies under your feet that's how 
That's how. Because he's the king of kings and he's the Lord of lords. And when he returns, it won't be a close fight. He will destroy his enemies forever. The next little bit, I won't read it. I'll just tell you what, what happens. An angel starts crying out to birds and tells them to come and feast. Because they're going to eat flesh. That is some grade A smack talk. You imagine go toe to toe with some guy and he just starts yelling at the birds like, come over here. There's about to, I'm about to lay waste over here. That's serious. I know, that's what everybody was hoping this Sunday morning, right? Nice uplifting message about birds eating dead people. Like, it, the Bible doesn't mess around. Jesus isn't doing, like, I just, this is the text. It's what it says. That's what it means for them to be subject under his feet. And while it's gruesome and it's hard, and, I, and I, we got to see, it's really, really good news. Because what Jesus is saying is when it comes to evil and sin and the things that are against you in this life, it's not going to be a close fight. God's enemies are going to be laid at his feet. They will be subject to him. He's going to rule with that rod of iron. And if you are his, he's ruling for you to protect you and love you and care for you. And so that sin in your life that is plaguing you and you're saying, I don't know that I can ever be free from this. Revelation 19 says that's not true. Jesus comes and he's speaking to it and he's saying, it's going to be subject at my feet. Come to me, I'll save you. Now you won't defeat that on your own, but in Christ, you can have victory. That's what we're seeing. This is a pure declaration of his greatness. How can you say that? How can David say that? Because this is who I am. But like I said before, greatness is not what we think it is. Because how does he accomplish this? How does he put death to death and sin to death? How does he get victory? By being nailed to a cross. Greatness isn't what we think it is. This king of glory, king of kings, lord of lords, who no one can stand in his stead, is going to be the king who, for on behalf of his people, willingly walks to a cross he does not deserve, and he lays down and he takes nails for me and for you, and the wrath of God is poured out on him. That wine press of the fury of God Almighty is poured out on Jesus. He takes on him the iniquity of us all. He's truly great, but greatness isn't what we think it is. It doesn't look like ruling and reigning and being a professional athlete and being in the movies. And that's not what greatness is when we look at the kingdom of God. When we look at Jesus. Jesus declares his own greatness, but he's doing that after already three times in the book of Mark telling us, I'm going to die for the sins of men and then rise again. When he says this, when he teaches in that temple, he knows what's coming next. He knows that his victory is going to come through his cross. So he declares his own greatness but then he warns of the world's version of greatness, picking up in verse 38. We see a warning against, and I put it in quotes, greatness. And in his teaching, he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feast, who devour widows and houses and for pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. So after declaring his own greatness, he then gives a warning. He says, beware of these scribes. Beware of these people who are using religion for their own means. 
these people who, who like to wear long robes. They've got the clothing. Everybody looks at them and they say, oh, here he comes. He's looking good. We're not that much different, are we? Man, I gotta have, I gotta have the right logo right here. So I'm looking good because that's what greatness looks like in this world. Gotta wear that specific color coat because that's what greatness looks like in this world. The honor that comes with that. Or his greetings in the marketplace. So what would happen in Matthew's a telling of the same story. He talks about how they need to be called a rabbi. It's about a title. That people would stand up and greet them. And have to pay them some kind of uh, respect and honor due to them. Maybe that's what you want. That's what you desire. That's the kind of greatness that your heart has set its face, its, its face on. Saying, I just want to look good. And I want to have that title. Got to have that status or that prestige. Got to sit in the right place at church. Or have the right role at church because they want to have the best seats in the synagogues. Man, I gotta teach. Don't these people see how awesome I am? I don't need to pick up chairs. Not in God's place. It's the least who are the greatest. Places of honor at feast. I wanna be in the places or have the things. The status, the possessions. I drive this kind of car, I own this kind of house. And it's real. It hits me too. House hunting. Man, I want a place of honor. I know I'm not the only one. And this is who they are. And Jesus is saying, beware of them. Beware of them. Beware of them. Why? What's the big deal if I just want some nice stuff? I want to go after these things. Or what's, what's the big deal with this? What if I just go seek some, just a little bit of worldly greatness? I don't want like all of it, but just maybe just a little. Well, I'm going to give you two reasons. Here's why it's a really, really big deal. Reason number one, I think we would all stand to say that godly greatness can only be attained through godly means. Right? We can think about last week's passage. We talked about the importance to love God with all that we are and then love our neighbor as ourselves. And we've talked about here before, the only way you're going to love your neighbor is if you first love God. Godly greatness can only come through godly means. Here's what that means then. Worldly greatness can only come through what? Worldly means. You want a little piece of this world, just a little little taste of it? There's only one way you're going to get it. These men devour widows' houses and for pretense make long prayers. This is probably referring to the reality that many of these scribes would be supported by the gifts of other people. And they were willing to live out lavish lifestyle while widows were giving all that they had. We're going to see in the next passage, quite literally, all that they had. Women who could not provide for themselves, who could not care for themselves, are giving all they have because they're being duped by these religious leaders in their long prayers putting on a spirit of holiness that is not legitimate. And they're taking advantage of that and they're devouring their houses, which means they're taking away their ability to provide for themselves and for others so that they might wear the long robes that they want to wear, have the places that they want to have, and have the honor that they believe they are due, rather than serving God. So that's what we have to see, is if you go after the world, you can only gain the world through worldly means. Inevitably, you are going to do things. You're going to lie, cheat, and steal to get there. 
It might not feel like it at first, but that's what will happen. You will only obtain godliness through godliness, and you will only obtain worldliness through worldliness. The second reason is this, is God has made you for greatness. That greatness is to give him honor and glory, to take all that he has given you and to reflect it back to him. And the moment we start to reflect it to ourselves, we become thieves, thieves of God's honor and God's glory. And God has told us that he is a jealous God. That's why it's a big deal. Because it's theft. You're stealing the glory and honor that belongs to the Lord and you're taking it for yourself. That should cause all of us to tremble and be frightened. So what about us? What kind of greatness are you going after? What have you set your heart on? What do you love? What are you seeking for? What keeps you up at night? I want to encourage you to do this. The one way you might apply this teaching this morning is I want you to commit to memory, to memorize Psalm 27, 4. It says, One thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to acquire in his temple. Why would I want you to memorize that as we come out of this teaching? Because what's that one thing you want more than anything else? What do you want more than anything else? You're desperate for it. You long for it. You can't get enough of it. I pray for you. It might be that you would dwell in the house of the Lord forever that you would just gaze upon the beauty of God. The thing that you long for is the worship and adoration of God and God alone. Because if that is set in your mind, if that's the thing that you love, and that's the thing that you're going after, everything else will fall in line. You'll parent God's way and you'll love your spouse God's way. You'll love your neighbor God's way. You'll love your church. You'll love your community. Everything else will start to fall in line. Your money and your possessions will start to be You'll be more free with them. You're going to be opening up your home and asking people, come on, let's do this. You're going to be looking to people, the widow and the orphan. You want to be a part of their life. Why? Because as you draw yourself closer to the heart of God, you find yourself becoming more and more like God. That's the step. What do you desire most? Do you desire to live in the house of the Lord forever? To just gaze upon his beauty, to inquire of his temple. That's what greatness will look like. To be great in the eyes of God is to seek after him before everything else. And so that's what I want us to look at in our last little bit this morning, verses 41 through 44, is we see a picture of greatness. Verse 41. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. So Jesus gives this teaching, these two teachings. He talks about his own greatness. He points to the fact, I, I'm, I'm the Messiah. I'm the one who's come. I'm the one who's fulfilling Psalm 110. I'm the one David was talking about. He then says, but beware of people who are looking to, to, for their own greatness. 
who want their own recognition, beware of them and stay away from them. You don't want to be like them. Why? Because they're going to get a greater judgment. The last little sentence there is, if we just literally took that, it would say a judgment in abundance. A greater condemnation is what our ESV says. That's what they're going to get. They're going to be judged by God, that God who holds the rod of iron that we just read about. Those are the guys on the other side of the whole bird thing. Like, they're going to come eat that. That's a huge warning. That's a really big deal. And after this really big warning, Jesus walks over, sits across from the treasury where he's seeing these people come and drop money into the offering boxes. And he calls the disciples to him. He says, come here, I want you to see something. Just watch this. Come here for a second. I want you to see what's getting ready to happen. And these rich people come, and they're dropping large sums of money. It's theorized, possibly, that when they did that, you could hear the clanging and the things going on, that maybe they were, you know, hefting it in there. And that's how you know they're putting in large sums of money. And then here comes this widow. She's described as being poor. She takes two coins. She drops them in. You would know, because two coins are just going to sound just nice and tiny instead of the big clinging of the large sums of money. Your ESV tells you that the two copper coins make one penny. There's not a penny in first century Rome. Here's what's happening there. Your ESV is trying to help you understand because Mark is actually helping them understand. So she would have been giving from a Hebrew currency because that's what they're required to do. Had to give from Hebrew currency when you're in the Hebrew temple. It's a part of Old Testament law. So she would have done that. So she has these two copper coins that are part of Hebrew currency. Two of them make one of the smallest coin in Roman currency. Okay? So that's why it says a penny because for us... Westerners reading this, that penny is the smallest coin. What I mean by this is what they're trying to show, and what's just coming out in the text is what happened, is her gift actually couldn't be smaller. That's what they're trying to, it can't get any smaller than what it was. These two copper coins are only worth anything if they're together. That's what they're trying to show you. It's like, hey man, can you give me something smaller than a penny? You'd be like, no. Why? Because we don't have anything smaller than a penny. That's, that's what he's trying to get across. There's nothing, her gift literally could not be smaller. It couldn't be smaller. And these people are coming giving really, really large sums of money. And then Jesus says something that's like totally paradoxical. And he says, listen, she has given more than anybody else here. And that, that should make you like scratch your, like she couldn't give any less. She literally could not give any less. It's impossible in our currency to do that. And Jesus said, no, 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 she, she's giving the most. She's giving more than anybody. Why? Because they're giving out of their abundance. She's giving out of her poverty. She's giving everything she had to live on. We could also render that last phrase. She laid down her whole life. This is maybe hard for us to know because we live in, in, a, in a day and age that I think is just a little bit more kind, particularly to significantly impoverished people. There are places where people can go in the city of Columbus if they have no, no money and they can get food. Right? Starving to death in Columbus just doesn't happen very often. I, I don't know if it happens at all, to be honest. It, it's, it's just not something that happens. There's always places to go and get food. There's always places to do, to do that. That isn't true here. They don't have those kind of social structures. If you're a widow and you don't have food and somebody doesn't take care of you, you are in serious trouble. There's no 
social government agency that can come in and help you. That doesn't exist. There's nowhere for you to go. If your own family doesn't care for you, there's nowhere to go. And so when she gives everything she has, she's staking her life that God is going to provide for her because she doesn't have any other way to bring about the basic necessities of life. She doesn't have a way to pay for shelter. She doesn't have a way to pay for food. She doesn't have a way to pay for water. She doesn't have that anymore. She's literally giving her life when she gives all that she has and trusting that God is going to do something to save her. That's what we see happening. That's the picture of greatness. Because in just a couple chapters in the book of Mark, what are we going to see happen? The Son of Man, Son of God, is going to literally give his life for the sake of everyone else. That's the picture of greatness. Greatness isn't what you think it is. Greatness is laying down your life for the glory of God and the love of other people. That's what it means to be great in the kingdom of God. In Colossians 2 verse 13, we read this. And you who once dead in your trespasses in the circumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all our trespasses. But how does that happen? Verse 14, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Psalm 110, fulfilled right there. The rulers, the authorities are put to open shame. How? Jesus triumphs over them. How? canceling the record of our sin debt that stood against us in all its legal demands when he was nailed to a cross. That's greatness. That's what it means to be great in the kingdom of God, to lay down your life for other people. That's what he's trying to help us see. That's what Jesus has done for me and you. 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9 says this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, Listen, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. That's what Jesus has done for us. Jesus was rich. He did not have to leave his throne in heaven. Equality with God was something he could grasp or hold on to, is what we're told in Philippians 2. But what does he do? He humbles himself even to the point of death. Becoming like a man, he humbles himself even to the point of death. And he is nailed to a cross of wood. He dies a criminal's death so that we might have life in him when we put our faith and trust in Jesus. So what are we to do? Walk in his steps. Follow Jesus in being somebody who lays down your life, your goods, all that you are for the glory of God and the love of others. Without those two commands that we see, and we can only do that when we are focused and have our eyes set on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, that we are a people who says, the one thing I ask, the one thing I want is to just dwell in the house of the Lord all of my days. I want to gaze upon your beauty. That's what I want, Lord. That's what I have to be. Help me do that. We can only do that with his help. 
you're not a Christian here this morning, I want to invite you to put your, play, your faith and trust in Jesus, the one who is great, the one who is saying, I'm coming back to rule and to reign forever. His judgment is real. The wrath of God is real. There's only one way to escape that. It's by understanding that your debt has been paid when Jesus went to the cross and died for your sin and wrongdoing. You stand before God and you are guilty. And if you do not have Jesus to advocate for you, you will be found guilty. And God and his righteous judgment will judge you forever. You will go to hell. But God who is rich in mercy has made a way from you He has made us alive together with him because why? He canceled that debt. He canceled that debt when he nailed it to the cross in his own flesh. And he took on in his body the wrath of God. So that God poured out his wrath and his judgment on Jesus. So that if you respond in faith and repentance in Jesus, you acknowledge what I've done is wrong. I can't do this on my own. Jesus, I want to turn to you. Help me. And then you act out in faith and you say, I'm going to trust you with my life and I'm going to start walking and following you. You are saved from the wrath of God. And you get to actually be on the path toward true greatness. Not a greatness of yourself, but the greatness of making God great. And that is the beautiful thing about the Christian life. Is you're saved for a purpose to join him, to join us in the local church of making much of God and little of ourselves. If you are a Christian here today, you need help. And I know you need help because I need help. You need help living this life. You can't look at these three texts and say, I got this, I can do this. I'm just gonna lay it all down, live for Jesus, no problem. You need help doing that. And here's the beautiful thing. God has given you that help right here. He's giving you his word, he's giving you his spirit, and he's giving you his people. You cannot live this way apart from those three means of grace in your life. So we want to invite you to come and be a part of our church. That might sound extreme or big, but that's what we want to see you do. Because I believe this is what God is calling you to do. He's calling you to live this way, and he's provided you the means of grace to do it. But you cannot do it apart from his grace. Grace saves you by faith, but it also keeps you till the end. And so come and enjoy. And I really mean that. Enjoy the beauty of the local body of Christ, the beauty of the preached word. Learn how to study this better with other Christians, the indwelling of his spirit. And you can do that in a really practical way. We have community groups. That's the next great step for you to take. Join a community group. Commit to going to it once a week. We have one that meets on Thursday nights at 6.30 at Stephen Leanne's house. They're happy to have you. They have a wonderful home. And if you want a louder experience, you can come to my house. Because we have all the children. (laughs) And it's loud and crazy. But we love it. And it's an enjoyable thing. And we are happy to share our home with you. And our our groups are like little families. And then we get to come and do other things together. And we do that. Why? Because we need help. We need help to live this life. But God has not left you alone. He has saved you into a people. He's making a people of his own possession, not just you. You're not lone wolf in this thing. That's the beauty of the local church. And so those are the things that I want you to respond in today. If you're not a believer, that you'd make the next step. 
God has been working in my heart a lot lately of, uh, as I learned to be a pastor and I'm new to all this. And one of those things is he's just been working in me. The, the truth, the right thing to do is just to take the next right step. So much of life, I'm a very strategic person. I just want to like figure it all out. There's the five-year plan. Right now this morning, I'm not calling you to a five-year plan. Take the next right step. If you don't know Jesus, I'll be in the back. Let's talk about that. Take the next right step. If you know Christ, community group is a great next right step. We meet at four o'clock this afternoon. John's bringing food. It's going to be awesome. And if that doesn't work, Thursday nights are wonderful. I invite you to take part in that. Well, with that, let's pray. And then we'll respond in singing and the taking of the Lord's Supper after that. Father, we love you. You are so good and gracious to us. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would just help us take the next right step. Help us respond to the word of God. Help me respond to it. Lord, you know all week as I walk through these texts, they preach to me first, and I get the easy job of I come up and I don't really preach anything other than just let you have your way. Just explaining what you've already said that I don't have to be unique or, or anything more. But God, you are, you are enough. You are more than enough. You're all sufficient. And that is such wonderful, wonderful news for all of us here, God. So God, help us live a life that understands what greatness truly is. That greatness is laying down our life for somebody else. God, help us to be people who willingly sacrifice because we know that what you said is true, that it is better to give than to receive. That we would be that kind of people, that you would move in us in that way. And ask this all in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.